appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt. He too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. But if it is from God, you will not be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. His speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Father in heaven, as we open the word today, I pray that you would open our hearts and minds. Father, allow this time to be more than information, more than inspiration. Make this a time of transformation. Let us be open to you to recognize what you are doing, to get on board with what you are doing in your church and in our lives, that we might not ever fight against you, that we might not ever work at cross purposes to you. And Father, as we embrace this reality and face the difficulties of our days, help us to do so with boldness. Speak to us now, Father. Speak beyond your servant. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Well, as we continue in our Impact World series, working through the the book of Acts, we're going to see a number of stories that have some similarities. We're going to see the apostles do wondrous things. We're going to see them face persecution and opposition. And each one of these, God has chosen to include for a reason. Today, I want us to be able to look at this story and find what is surprising. That helps us very often to see what the main point of the story is. It's more than just, oh, here's a neat application we can can draw from this. God is saying something specific. We need to be able to see what God is saying through this author to his original audience so that we can make it a universal principle. We can draw from what he is intending to say and draw from that for our own lives rather than reading into the text what we want it to say or how we think it should apply to our own lives. Now, today's a beautiful day, right? We're going to have some great weather. I'm really excited about 50 degrees. Anybody else excited about 50 degrees? And I was very thankful to see in the forecast that, that they've kind of walked back some of the rain forecast over this next week. I don't know about you, do any, anybody else in here get notifications on your phone with weather, weather advisories? Man, I've been getting so many of these uh, lakeshore flood warnings. Anybody seen those? If you have a house on the lake or you know somebody with a house on the lake, you're very keenly aware of that. We've seen a lot of foundations of homes being eroded. Million dollar homes, multi-million dollar homes that are just about to go in the drink. 
And some of them have. It reminds me of when I was in high school back in the 80s, and we had the same problem. And all of these lake houses, these beach houses, were, were ending up crashing into the water as their foundations were eroded by the lake. Now, at the time, I was working for Excavator, Banky Excavation, and uh, uh, my buddy Jimmy Graham and I were, were tasked with building sandbag walls to save these houses. Some of you are smirking already. It was our job as 17-year-old kids, 17, 18 years old, to go out, fill sandbags on the beach, and build walls to keep the lake from eating their homes where it had just washed out the concrete foundation. And I said to my boss, does that seem smart? If it took out the concrete foundation of the home, what good is sandbags going to do? It's not going to help. And he laughed and he said, yeah, you're right. And that's what we told the customers. But they want to pay us for it, so there you go. So we had a good time working that summer on the beach, filling sandbags and getting strong and tan and all that kind of stuff. And getting paid crazy money. I mean, six bucks an hour. That was huge. Maybe not as huge now. That same kind of folly, that, that same kind of foolishness that thinks that we can stop the lake with sandbags is a lot like what we see when people try to oppose what God is doing. In fact, that's our core reality as we look at this passage today. It hinges on this idea. It is impossible to impede what God has planned for His people. It is impossible to impede what God has planned for His people. Say that with me. It is impossible to impede what God has planned for His people. As we look at this text, there are a lot of things in here that we've already seen. And one specific thing that we have not so far in this book. Let's walk through this. As we, as we take a look at this, there are some observations that we can make from this passage. As we walk through these things, we're going to see how this unfolds. And the first thing we see is a rash reaction. A rash reaction. In response to what's going on among the apostles and the popularity that they have and all the people going to them, we see in verse 17, the high priest and all his associates who were members of the party of the Sadducees were filled with jealousy. Jealousy is not a great motivator. And it moves them in verse 18 to this rash reaction. They arrested the apostles and put them in the public jail. So because they're upset, they're bothered by what is happening, their immediate reaction is, we're going to shut it down. This is too popular, we're shutting it down. We're going to block that YouTube channel, we're not going to let this happen. We're going to keep them from being able to preach. They've already arrested them previously. They've already told them, stop, stop, stop. You can't talk about Jesus, you can't do these things. And that didn't stop them. So here they are doing it again. They're filled with jealousy as the crowds are coming to them, and their immediate reaction is a knee-jerk one. It's a rash one, and it doesn't end up going well. Notice, after this rash reaction, we see a divine deliverance. There's a divine deliverance in verse 19. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the doors of the jail and brought them out. So God intervenes, they're in the jail, God intervenes and delivers them from this moment, but 
interestingly, God doesn't deliver them just to flee. He delivers them to do something. He delivers them and commands them, go into the temple courts, out in public, where the crowds are, where you were, where you were arrested. Go back there and preach the word. Tell people all about this new life. We see here persistent preaching. We have a rash reaction followed by divine deliverance. And that divine deliverance results in persistent preaching. They got delivered, and after they got delivered from this jail, they got right, af- right back after it in the temple courts. They obeyed, they went out and did it. And of course, as you might expect, we see more of a desire to deal with them. The, the Sanhedrin gets called. Now this is not just the small group. This, we see the Sadducees and the high priests. This is the small religious group. The Sadducees are sort of, it's, it's interesting, they are controlling the, the priesthood. They're controlling the religious ceremonies of, of the nation, as it were, in Jerusalem. But they're really the more liberal secularists. It's not unlike what we see today in a lot of biblically liberal or theologically liberal churches, mainline churches primarily in America. Uh, And we see seminaries like Union Seminary in New York and lots of others who have turned from faithful adherence to God's Word to a approach that says, "Eh, it's kind of a living document. You know, we want... you know, we believe in God, but we're not entirely sure if God wrote the Bible. We're not entirely sure that it's authoritative. The, the Sadducees were a little bit like that. They took out the things that were hard for them to believe, the miracles and so on, and they explained them away. But they were just one party. So while they may have controlled the priesthood, the teaching, the, the prominent teachers in Israel were primarily the Pharisees. There were other groups, such as the Zealots. They were looking for political revolution. They wanted to overturn everything. And then there were the Essenes. They were super pious. They were the separatists. So they went off and lived in their own little commune or conclave kind of situation. So they pulled out from society as not to be stained by the corruption of the world. But the Pharisees, they were kind of the larger group, made up of a good chunk of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin was about 120 people. So you go from this small group of, of, of leadership to a big group. And they're all called in to deal with the Jesus problem. And in this case, specifically, the Peter problem. You've got these guys preaching. We're going to shut it down. We're going to put a stop to it. Let's get everybody together and work this through. And this persistent preaching that has happened, even now, even in the face of judgment, by the leadership council of the nation of Israel. This is big. This is like the White House and the Vatican combined. You're you're putting all of the the religious spiritual leaders that people recognize and the political leaders for the nation. You're, You're kind of combining all of that together. And when they get the apostles there, they don't stop with their preaching. In fact, Peter doubles down on it, doesn't he? So they they get them together. It's interesting to me that they don't use force, even though they've arrested them. Their divine deliverance has put them back out in the center of the the populace. 
and they don't use force because they feared that the people would stone them. I, I just got to say, if it were me, I might be afraid that if an angel delivered them, if they got out of this jail by some divine power, I might be afraid of God. But they haven't figured all that out yet. I don't even know if they know that they've been delivered by angels yet. What they do know is they're out and we got to deal with this. So they, they command them again, verse 28, We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. So Peter and the other apostles double down. As they've told them before, we have to obey God. You all have your place. We'll submit to your authority, but not when it, when it tries to usurp God's authority. We do what God says. And God says to submit to our leaders, so we'll do that. But if you're going to try and stop us from doing the, the express thing that God has called us to, to share the good news of this new life in Christ, well, forget about that. He goes on to say, The God of our ancestors, in verse 30, raised Jesus from the dead. Jesus, whom you killed by hanging Him on a cross. You, 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 you're determined of making us guilty. That's because you are. So while my inclination might be in my flesh to say, oh, well, guys, you know, sorry, I didn't mean to offend. Peter puts his foot right in it. Yeah, here's the deal. You killed him. Before he was softer, in his previous talks, he said that you did this along with the Gentiles, along with the people, according to God's purpose. But now they're going to get defensive about it. He's going to take the finger of accusation directly at them. You killed him by hanging him on a cross. Everyone God exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior so that he might bring Israel to repentance and forgive their sins. We are witnesses of these things and so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Now remember, these are jealous people. They're angry people. They've already made these rash reactions. When they heard this in verse 33, they were, what's the word there? Anybody got your Bibles open? What's your, what's your Bible say? Furious. They were furious. And they wanted to do what? Put them to death. Just making sure everybody's awake out here. Sometimes that coffee wears off before we get going. But a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, who was honored by all the people, stood up in the Sanhedrin, and he uttered wise words. We see the rash reaction, the divine deliverance, persistent preaching, and wise words. Gamaliel, we'll see later on, is actually Paul's mentor. Saul, now we refer to him as Saul, later on we'll refer to him as Paul, probably goes by both. But as he's going through this, Paul, the apostle, who starts out in a few chapters, we'll see him as Saul the persecutor. He is zealous for God. And he is angry about this cult of Christianity, this weird sect as he sees it. And he does everything that he can to shut it down. But interestingly, his mentor is Gamaliel. Gamaliel is a very well-known rabbi. In fact, it's likely that he was the grandson of the great rabbi Hillel. And between Hillel and Gamaliel, we see great impact on the rabbinical writings, on the teachings uh, in the Jewish uh, tradition. Here, this still unconverted rabbi, he does not, he's not a follower of Christ. 
He doesn't see Jesus as the Messiah. He's not on board with what the apostles are teaching, and yet he brings some Yoda-like wisdom. He calms the situation down. Now, how many of you are Star Wars fans? Anybody? Okay. How many of you hate Star Wars? How many of you have no idea because you've never seen any of them and you really don't care? All right. So we've got a pretty even mix. But you all know who Yoda is, right? Because he came from the Muppets. He came from, from Frank Oz and Jim Henson. So it, that makes everything good. So Yoda had this profound, irritating tendency to try to things down. When Luke Skywalker would get in, in a, a big tizzy, he'd try to calm him down, try to slow your roll, buddy. We're, we're not going to go in there flashing lightsabers. Let's not let hate take over. Let's calm our thoughts and, and think. Now, Yoda is not a great example of Christian doctrine, so let's not be confused between fiction and fact. But there's a calming effect that wisdom has even when it comes from a believer like Gamaliel. Gamaliel was wise, even though he wasn't converted yet. He knew the Word of God. He knew God's history. In fact, there are so many scriptures. I just put together a, a quick list that I, you know, just clipping some things out. I'll give you a little insight to how this process worked. A lot of these were things that were considered for our memory verse today. This is why Aaron gets it so late in the week from me instead of early. Because I'm going through these trying to sort them out. But I just want to read some of these for you. These are things that Gamaliel knew. From Job 42.2, Job says, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. The psalmist writes, as we read earlier, But the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of His heart through all generations. That's our memory verse for today. Psalm 135, 6. The Lord does whatever pleases Him in the heavens and on the earth, in the seas and all their depths. Proverbs 16, 9 says, In their hearts humans plan their course, but the Lord establishes their steps. Proverbs 19, 21. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the, it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. Isaiah 14 tells a lot of this. I'll read that, that passage for you in just a moment. Psalm 127.1 Unless the Lord builds the house, the builders labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the guards stand watch in vain. Jeremiah 32.17 As we sang recently, Ah, sovereign Lord, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Gamaliel was familiar with with the writing of the prophets. You can turn to Isaiah 14. You can keep Acts marked. We'll be back there. But in Isaiah 14, God is speaking through the prophet about what he's going to do. He's, he, he spends so much time through the prophets speaking of Israel's doom, of the punishment that will come because they have abandoned God. They have neglected God. At various points, they've actually turned from God to pagan idols. And when they didn't do that, they kept the practices of religion, but they left God's heart. They honored Him with their lips, but their hearts were far from Him. And we see this repeatedly throughout the prophets. Here in Isaiah 14, the prophet is telling Israel, God still has a plan. 
And God is going to bring about his plan, as we might say, by hook or by crook, because nothing stops the Lord Almighty. When he says, this is what I'm going to do, he does it. Starting with verse 1, you can read along with me. Speaking of the days when Babylon will fall. Babylon is where Judah goes into exile. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's hand. They will make captives of their captors. I love that. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end. How his fury has ended. The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, Now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut us down. Jump ahead if you would to verse 16. Speaking still to Babylon, Those who see you stare at you, they ponder your fate. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness? Who overthrew its cities and would not let its captive, his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected branch. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the, to the stones of the pit. Like a corpse trampled underfoot, you will not join them in burial. For you have destroyed your land and killed your people. This is a powerful condemnation. God is, has used or is using at this time Babylon to reduce the pride of his own people. God has said from the beginning, I will deliver my people. They will be my people and I will be their God. They will be purified and cleansed and they will follow in obedience but Israel has not done that and so God uses these evil nations through their evil that they're already doing he steers their evil toward his own people so that judgment can begin with the house of God so that his people through this oppression would turn back to him thus accomplishing what God said to do in them gently had they obeyed, and now harshly because they did not. But God's purpose stands firm. Now he speaks to Babylon and says, I will set this right. Babylon will pay for her sins. Babylon will be destroyed. Even mighty Babylon. Nobody can understand how in the world God can stand up against this oppressor. Or how God, if He is holy and sovereign, allows this oppressor to continue. And God says, it will happen. Notice, picking up with verse uh, 22. No, 
that's not what I want. Uh, pick up with verse 24. The Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the plan determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed and who stretched out and who can turn it back? Gamaliel, as he encounters these various uprisings, it's an older man. With that experience comes perspective and wisdom. As an older man who knows the scriptures, he is able to look back on the things that we read to see what God has promised and delivered against his people and against the oppressors of his people. He has seen God do what God has said deliver and judge. And so he's able to bring these wise words to them to say, listen, guys, listen, guys, slow your roll here. You don't need to react rashly because if this is not from God, then God will shut it down. It'll fizzle out. Their strength means nothing. But if it is from God, do you really want to be on the opposite side? Do you really want to be the sandbag that the lake is going to eat? Do you really want to fight against God? That's a losing battle. Well, they're persuaded, at least for the time. It's interesting that their, their version of, of letting them go involves flogging them. But as this, as this carries on, as we go through the text... We go from the wise words that bring them to this, this place of, of persuasion that calms down the rash reaction. They still order them not to speak in the name of Jesus. And in verse 41, we see what I would call sacred suffering. The rash reaction, the divine deliverance, the persistent preaching, the wise words. And we see in verse 41, sacred suffering. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good Messiah. Their suffering was viewed as a privilege, an honor, a divine appointment. We got to be disgraced for the name. We got to be flogged for the name. Do we look at our suffering that way? We see this theme throughout Israel's history. We see it throughout the New Testament. James, Paul said the same thing. Consider it joy. Recognize that even in our suffering we rejoice because God is working out something bigger than our suffering. Paul goes on to say that... Man, I don't even consider our suffering worth comparing to the great, glorious thing that God is doing that He will reveal in us in a time yet future. Hold on, baby, hold on. As we move through this, this sacred suffering leads them to a fearless focus. 
fearless focus. Their suffering brought them to this. As they kept their eyes on Christ, they were persistent in this pursuit. And so day after day, in the temple courts and from house to house, notice it's both. It's the temple courts, the gathering for teaching, and house to house. Daily relationships. As they're going about their day, they're intentionally thinking about Jesus. I want Jesus in my conversation. I want my every conversation to be seasoned with salt so that whoever encounters me, whether I'm sitting at the restaurant or whatever else, I want them to know this new life. So they have this intentionality throughout every part of what they're doing, whether they're in the temple courts or house to house. Because this suffering already smacked them in the face, they've been through this, it reinforced the resoluteness of their focus. They may have been perhaps fearing persecution, but once you've been through it, once you've taken that beating, that flogging, and you've seen that as a sacred thing, a joy, not that anybody likes being flogged, but what it does, what it means, what it represents, that I stood for Christ in the face of opposition. I see God doing a greater thing. It results in an even greater spread of the gospel and an even more resolute stance, like a steer in a snowstorm. Rash reaction, divine deliverance, persistent preaching, wise words, sacred suffering, fearless focus. We see in this passage that as persecution increased, so did the church's focus. So did the church's commitment. So did the church's purity and holiness. In fact, right before this, if you were with us last week, we looked at God doing a purging early in the church with Ananias and Sapphira. Their hypocrisy, their dishonesty, their presenting uh, an act of worship as if it was about God when their eyes were really on self-stuff and status, caused God to purify them. That's why everybody's afraid to gather with them. Nobody wants to be with the church because that's scary and dangerous. You go to that church and God strikes you dead when you have hypocrisy. Well, I don't want to show up there. It's scary. And yet people continue to be converted. As we see this persecution take place, It purifies the church. Fakers don't show up. When there is a cost, when your life is on the line, when your job is on the line, when you actually are facing persecution, then the casual Christian fades away. The nominal Christian gets out. That's not what happens here, is it? They're staying and they're persistent. Why? Because the casual have left. We were curious, but not anymore, dude. That's two burials in three hours. I'm out. That's too much for me. Flogging? No, I'm going to pass. But we see that as the persecution increased, so did the church's focus and commitment, as well as its purity and holiness. The efforts to stop it, just as Gamaliel understood, only further God's purposes in building His church. That is the story. 
It's not just that they did things and that they had bad things happen to them because they did things and then they stepped up and did more things. It's the wise words of an unconverted rabbi that this whole story hinges on. If this is from God, you can't stop it. If it isn't from God, it's going to go away on its own. Let God handle it. It is impossible to impede what God has planned for His people. And we see the result in in the telling of the story as Luke records it for us here. We see the answer to Gamaliel's logical logical position in the follow-up. If this is of God, it's going to keep going. Guess what happens? It's of God, and it keeps going. And they keep being added to. Let's take a look at how we might apply this today. What are some insights for us that we can glean from this? First, rash reactions rarely render righteous results. Now, I'm not looking for alliteration, but sometimes it just happens. It just falls together. Don't get excited. It's not going to continue, but it, it just fell there. Rash reactions rarely render righteous results. Understand, if you're, giving, if you're given to a hot temper, you are not walking in the footsteps of Christ. If you're given to a hot temper then you need to check yourself because your knee-jerk reactions in the moment as your emotions take over, that is a response to your flesh not walking in the Spirit. And as a Spirit-filled, Christ-following believer, you need to crucify that. I'm not talking about trying to contain it. You need to change the way you think about it. Stop thinking. Your anger is justified because other people are stupid. You know that's what you're thinking. Yeah, you're laughing because I think the same thing. Every time we get frustrated and mad with that driver, that boss, that coworker, that child, that parent, every single time we are thinking to ourselves, my anger subconsciously, of course, because we'd never say it consciously. My anger is justified. And you're stupid. And if you weren't so stupid, I wouldn't be so angry. But that's not godliness. We're called to love. We're called to the same patience that God shows with us. That even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. That's the love we're called to. Rash reactions rarely render righteous results. Secondly, we see that nothing can stop God's work in our lives. Nothing can stop God's word in our lives. Nothing can impede. It is impossible. Nothing can do that. Nothing can impede what God has planned for His church or for the people of His church. If you are a believer in Christ a member of the body of Christ. You are part of the church. And what God says of the whole is also true of the individual. God has a plan for you. God will complete that plan for you. Just as Paul said to the Philippian church, Philippians 1.6, I'm confident that the one who started the work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. God's not done. And God's plans, as Job said, cannot be thwarted. Nothing can stop God from doing what He's going to do in our lives. Third, 
We cry out in the dark. We must speak out in the light. We cry out in the dark. We must speak out in the light. When things are bad, we cry out to God and God delivers us. He doesn't deliver us solely for us. We get our theology twisted a lot of the time and we think sometimes that all this stuff in our life is about us. As if you and I are the center of the universe. (laughs) Ptolemy used to say that the earth was the, the center of the universe, the center of what we might call the solar system now. And it, it took someone in rebellion against the church at the time to say, uh, wait a minute, we're actually moving around the sun. I don't think that's an accident, that God has us, whether, whether Galileo sees it or not, whether Ptolemy sees it or not, I don't think it's an accident that God has us not be the center of the solar system. There's a message for us. It ain't about you, bro. It's about God. When God delivers us from our circumstances, it is for our blessing and our good, but it is primarily for His glory. He has a plan for us, through us, in us. We cry out in the dark, Lord, help me. When he does, he says to us, I've taken you out of this prison cell. Now get to the temple and tell everybody. If you've been saved, if you have been transferred from darkness to life, to darkness to light, having received the resurrection life of Christ, trusting in his, his death on the cross to be enough, to pay for all of your sin. If you have have taken hold of that, how can you not, how can you not share that? Why would you put that candle under a bushel basket? If we know Him, then we got to share Him. If we grasp the reality of Him, then we are eager to serve Him. We cry out in the dark, we must speak out in the light. Fourth, our best efforts cannot do what God is stopping, nor stop what God is doing. (coughs) Our best efforts cannot do what God is stopping, nor nor stop what God is doing. That's Gamaliel's point. All these other people, they, they rose up and they faded away. Because if you're trying to do something that is exalting yourself above God's plan, God will handle it. You don't have the strength on your own anyway. God doesn't have to do a whole lot. One breath wipes it out. (laughs) Even, Even this horrible ancient foe who seeks to work us woe, one little word shall fell him. The reality is Christ Christ wins. He is everything. Our best efforts cannot do what God is stopping, nor stop what God is doing. We're not going to make this a better church by coming up with better schemes, better marketing, better technology, air conditioning, and and nice chairs, and all that kind of stuff. That is not what makes a church. 
The style of music is not what makes a church. God builds His church on the rock-solid foundation of Jesus Christ as revealed in His Word. His Spirit in us does the work, and He doesn't need our help. He chooses to work through our obedience, but He doesn't need our help. And nobody who opposes what God is doing (coughs) will ever be able to stop that. No plan of God can ever be thwarted. Our best efforts cannot do what God is stopping, nor stop what God is doing. Fifth, suffering for the Lord is a purposeful privilege, divinely designed to to develop discipleship. I didn't include it in your program, but in 1 Peter, we're told that Jesus left us a path that we should walk in His steps. That path is suffering. If we want to be like Christ, suffering is the lot. That's how it works. Here's the thing. You're going to suffer in this fallen world anyway. You're going to have hard days. Things are going to go wrong. They can go wrong because you've made bad choices, or they can go wrong because the devil is opposing what God is doing. If that's the case, anything that stands up against you is part of what God has set aside for you to develop you, to teach you, to grow you, to make you more like Christ. Just as they saw it there, suffering for the Lord is a purposeful privilege Divinely designed to develop discipleship. Divinely designed to develop discipleship. We rejoice in our sufferings, not because suffering is fun, but because they're working something greater, a greater eternal glory in us. Number six, when we fix our attention on Christ... Suffering bolsters our boldness and intensifies our intentionality. When we fix our attention on Christ, suffering bolsters our and intensifies our intentionality. You know when it does the opposite? You know what makes our faith weak? When our focus is not on Christ. When our focus is on us. Poor me. Lord, why? Why do I have to go through this? When our focus is on Christ, then that perspective shifts. doesn't mean we don't hurt. We still hurt. Of course we hurt. God gave us emotions as human beings. But when we lift our gaze, when we fix our eyes on things above, not on earthly things, and we recognize that this suffering that we're enduring is a purposeful privilege that God Himself has designed, by His sovereign will, to bring about in us the discipleship that we need to be mature and complete, lacking in nothing. Then we begin to approach it differently. Then the suffering doesn't take us down. Then we don't fear man. We only fear God. And if we recognize that God is the biggest and the only one worthy of fear and He cannot be stopped and He's on our side, then that fear is overwhelmed by by His grace. When we fix our attention on Christ, suffering 
bolsters our boldness and intensifies our intentionality. We begin to see every moment, every conversation as an opportunity to reflect Christ. Our purpose being to make God smile. To share with others what we have ourselves found as beggars, hopeless, with nothing to offer God. We have found the storehouse of bread. We become intentional, intensely intentional, and making sure that people have the opportunity to find that same truth. My time is gone. Let's wrap this up. Understand this what God decides, He does. What He purposes, He performs. This is specifically and powerfully true of His people, the church. Even as those who opposed the infant church in Acts found themselves fighting against God, trying to hold back the tide with a soup ladle, so will all the enemies of Christ's church ultimately fail. It is impossible to impede what God has planned for His people. The plans of the Lord stand firm forever. The purposes of His heart through all generations Understand, He will build His kingdom. He doesn't need our clever schemes and marketing techniques, but He chooses to work through our faithful obedience as we reflect the reality of Christ. And as He builds, protects, defends, and disciplines His church, so will He build, protect, defend, and discipline you and me as His children, the individual members of His church. Let's rest in the knowledge that the one who began the good work in you will be faithful to carry it out to completion until the final day when Christ returns. Who can stop the Lord Almighty? It is impossible to impede what God has planned for His people. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we gather to remember what Jesus did for us, Having opened your word and seen your truth, Father, I pray that this would take root deep in us. Make your word live in our hearts, that we might display it in our actions. Lord, it's easy for us to hear these truths and to sing songs and, and even recite various creeds and, and then go into our lives, into our everyday and not connect the, this reality that you've revealed to us to the realities of our everyday life. It's easy for us to then forget that you are on our side and you are unstoppable. It's easy for us to forget that it's not about us. It's always been about you. And you have chosen to love us. But Father, we don't want that. We don't want to forget. Remind us. Remind us in our everyday as we, as we go from here into our work week and our school week and our family week. As we go from the pinnacle of of taking communion together, remembering the, 
the price that was paid in celebrating our freedom and life and singing songs of glory. Father, make it real for us. Cause us to take it with us, to be changed. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Being the first Sunday of the month, it is our practice to receive what is known throughout the world and throughout the generations as the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, which means the Thanksgiving, communion, because we commune together as one body with Christ, or as we often call it here, the remembrance celebration, because that's what Christ commanded us to do, to do it in remembrance of Him. And as we do this, I'm reminded of Paul's words to the Corinthian church. They didn't take it seriously. And they ate and drank judgment upon themselves because they went through the motions of a ceremony. But their hearts were not right with God. So I want to encourage you today, whether you are old or young, whatever your particular status, whatever your particular sin. To recognize that this ancient ceremony that draws from the ancient ceremony of Passover among the Jewish people, that reminded them of God's deliverance from Egypt, is what one of the things that binds us together, all of the tribes of man, as they are called, in Christendom, as we have joined together in the body and blood of Christ... We share one loaf. There's one faith, one God and Father of all. So this is open to anyone who is in Christ. You don't have to be a member of real life, but you do have to know Jesus personally. If you have not trusted in Him, if you've not made that choice to say, I can't do this, I am not good enough, And I can never be good enough. But I believe that Jesus' death on the cross is every bit of enough. It's everything that could ever be needed to take away my sin. And I'm going to hold that umbrella. That's my entire hope for life. He's my parachute. If you're all in with Jesus, knowing that you have no other hope, and you believe that He is who He says, is enough that you're willing to share that confess with your mouth openly yeah i belong to him and this is for you this is for you we're going to pass the bread i'm going to ask at this time for our our six ushers our overseers plus two to come up tim that's you're the you're the sixth one so (laughs) i'll have you come up um if you could come up and and uh be prepared here what we will do now is pass the bread, then we'll pass the cup, and I'm going to ask you to hold on to them so that we can take them together. And as we do, just 
think about what this means. Contemplate it. We'll use the word meditate on it. As you're holding this bread and you're holding this cup, this represents the reality of Christ's body and blood. This represents Jesus Christ dying because you and I deserve to die. You and I are separated from God by sin and He made us right. As you take these elements, you are affirming that this is your hope. Your every confidence that God cannot be stopped. And it is impossible to impede His plans for His people. So as we do this, we're affirming that together. Let's pray briefly before we begin. Father, we confess to You that we have nothing to offer on our own. That we are sinful. And we ask, Lord, that that You would make us aware, even in these moments, of anything that we've not addressed or held back from You so that we can confess it to You. We want to be right with You, Lord. Move in us by Your Holy Spirit. That as we take this bread and this cup, that we would be reminded of the cost of the atoning sacrifice Jesus made on our behalf that He who knew no sin became sin for us that we could become Your righteousness. Remind us that we are a family, brothers and sisters in Christ, forever. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
on the night he was betrayed, our Lord took the bread, representing the affliction of the people, and he passed it among them. And he said, this is now my body, broken on your behalf. Take it and eat. With the cup he did likewise. The cup after dinner, the redemption cup, that represented the blood of the perfect Passover lamb, sacrificed so that those who were covered by the blood would be passed over by death. In the same way, Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life, said this is now a new covenant, a new way of relating to God, written in my blood. Take it and drink. The word tells us that when they had done this, they sang a hymn, and then they went on their way. We'll do the same thing. We're going to to sing a, a new song today, a song that celebrates our Lord, who is the Lion of Judah, and also the Lamb who was slain for our sin. It is through the slaying of the Lamb that the Lion has triumphed. And what looked so dark and hopeless on Good Friday, as the devil presumably thought he had won, was the exact path that God had planned from the beginning for the victory of Judah's lion. Now reigning, who can stop the Lord Almighty? His plans cannot be thwarted. His purposes stand firm forever. Let's stand and sing today as we finish this service out.
Our God is the lion, victorious, reigning. And He is the lamb, slain for us to make us His. Nothing can stop the plans He has for you. So as you leave this place and go into your week, go boldly, knowing that the plans of the Lord are firm forever, the purposes of His heart through all generations. Now go in peace. You're dismissed.